here in the room and those of you online, I just know that many people will watch online before they ever set foot in this room. And the reality is that we want to get to know you and your story. And we know that that takes time, that takes risk, that takes trust. And so we hope that as we journey together, as you get to know us and we get to know you, that we can build that trust together. Now, one of the unique things that is happening today, that before I get into the actual teaching, I just want to highlight, uh, we are part of a church planning organization that plants churches all over the Northwest. And something that's happening unique today is down in Eugene, Oregon, a new generation's church is having their first public gathering. And we could not be more excited for that. What's, what's, what's really, really neat about, about that is, is Saul Rexius, uh, the planter, um, he's actually native of Eugene. He played football at the University of Oregon, so we've got a lot of ties there. And so i just really excited. They have started a campus ministry that launched this fall and the church first public gathering today. And so just as I share that, uh, I just pray that uh, we... Can, can be praying for them. And in fact, that's what I want to do right now is we stand in the midst of a family of churches. And when we say expand God's family, like, like what we mean is that that's through here within our local context, like neighbor to neighbor, friend to friend, family to family, like helping people understand the goodness of God's family, but also starting new faith communities across the Northwest. And so if you would, um, just pray with me. Don't, you don't have to pray out loud. You can pray in your heart and in your head, but just, we want to lift them up to God this morning. God, you are good. And right now we pray for Generations Church in Eugene, Oregon. God, we pray that you bless them, that you give them favor, that you help them just be a light in the darkness, a city on a hill. God, I pray that, that many people come to faith and trust in you because of their efforts. We celebrate and we praise that your kingdom is expanding in the Northwest. God, we, we believe that you are at work, and so moments like this are just glimpses that we get to see that. Thank you for your love and for your grace. God, bless them, strengthen them, giving them a long ministry that leads many people to you, to know your love. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So what was your favorite toy like as a kid? Um, G.I. Joe. Okay, okay. So I should preface this too. Like we're the talk about kind of church. So when I ask a question, it's not purely rhetorical. It's I need some answers. So we've got a G.I. Joe. Okay. Who else? What was your favorite toy as a kid? And then maybe if you're brave, at what age did you stop playing with it? Cabbage Patch. Legos. Bicycle. Fishing pole. Fishing pole. Well, Bob, we know that's not stop. So, um, and anybody... <laughs> Anybody else, like, got a favorite? Okay, maybe think about, like, what, at what age, you know, if you had a favorite toy as a kid, at what age you stopped playing with said toy? Okay, so, follow up to those. Um, for the adults in the room, when was the first moment that you realized that you were no longer a child? Do you have a memory or a moment 
was it the first time you had to like pay your electric bill or like it's like you realize you're driving off to college? I know, I know for me, it was, I, I kind of, my, my upbringing, I had my life laid out pretty much for me or, or so I thought. And, and then you start to go on an adventure with God. And one of the things I learned is I had to, I was actually going to turn away from a scholarship to go to a university and follow God's call into ministry and go to another university. And I had to, I had to come home and tell my parents that I, this is a decision um, that I was making and I was responding to God in this way. And I'll tell you, um, initially they, they were kind of like, not okay with that. They're like, you're forgoing what a scholarship to do, like go on this whole other path. How's it going to work? You know, dot connecting people, very serious, logical, like we had a plan. Why didn't you stick to the plan? And so, so then I remembered if I, this was going to be a transition for me to where it wasn't, I I was going to be stepping out of some of their provision and their protection and having to own this choice. For myself. And I remember, interesting enough, it was about a little after being 18 years of old where I had to make that decision. And I recognize that the constant rescuing that my parents did provide for me in much of my upbringing, get me out of trouble, showing up to some car wrecks and some things like that, and driving me home and go, helping me work through all those moments, that there was a chance that that was not going to happen anymore. And thankfully, my parents eventually came around to the idea of following God's call. And I'm extremely grateful for them and for the protection and the provision that they provided during my upbringing. But for me, that was a pivotal moment when I recognized I was was no longer a child or a teenager, but I was now transitioning into a level of ownership of my life where I was going to have to bear the responsibility and consequences of my actions. Third, fourth, fifth question. I just like questions. I have questions, okay? Like, as you think about the bearing of responsibility in your own life, oftentimes we craft an image or a picture of what it means to have a good life. So I guess in your mind's eye, what marks the good life for you? Maybe you've got a general concept or, or word that comes to mind of what a good life is. Maybe it's the, the arrival or the achievement of something. It's, it's interesting because we all on some level, whether it's ever said out loud, have this understanding or kind of picture of what it means to live a good life. And if we're going to analyze why a relationship with Jesus is really, really good, why this sermon series is this benefits package, why Jesus and his role in our life is the ultimate benefit, then we got to start to wrestle with the other pictures and the other types of benefits that we think our version of the good life has to offer. We must consider our answer. What's interesting within this author writing to this group of Hebrews, this early church who are considering their life and their story, they had a picture of what it meant to live a good life. 
And the challenge was, is in their followership of Jesus, they were confronted with some pain and some suffering. And from, frankly, the the picture they had in their head of what life should be or look like was not coming to reality. And so they started to have some questions and concerns. And so this author really writes this letter or, or preaches this sermon and trying to help them understand, hey, compared to the alternatives, because they were considering throwing in the towel, giving up, saying the option in front of me is better than actually following Jesus. And so let me throw in the towel. And this author writes and he says, Jesus is better. Don't give up. Because when we're confronted with different possible versions of what it means to live the good life, sometimes when something doesn't quite work out the way we want to, we consider throwing in the towel. And that drastically affects how we view faith and followership of Jesus. We all have different stories and upbringings. We have different work experience and different family dynamics. And all these aspects ultimately shape how we would think we would answer that preliminary question. Or even in the present, what makes a good life and what we should do in the future to achieve it? These early Christians were wrestling with that. And in their minds, they viewed their present suffering as an obstacle to them from achieving a good life. So they were considering foregoing their faith and going back to a Jewish system of belief. And what he's doing is he's he's using this Jewish system of belief to challenge some underlying assumptions. What they think they want to go back to, he's using their reasoning almost against them. He says, do you really think that this is better? And he's main plea is faith in Jesus is better than this Old Testament system. And so he's systematically utilizing many of these aspects that were most attractive and trying to debunk this reality. That Jesus ultimately is better and they should not give up on their faith. Most of you as you consider the intersection of your faith and life, probably aren't choosing between following Jesus and going back to an Old Testament Jewish system of belief. But chances are, in your everyday life, there's a constant struggle and battle to choose between what could it look like to follow Jesus well in my shoes in this moment and doing ultimately what feels right. determining right and wrong in our own eyes and saying, I think this is better. A choice between Jesus and what feels good to you. And then as we move into this, what the author wants to get us to understand is if we see Jesus rightly, we will undergo a change and a maturity that ultimately brings a fulfilling life. But there's a very real challenge He wants to start to talk 
about this priesthood, Jesus as the high priest, as this aspect that needs to be debunked, why the Old Testament is better, basically saying that the Old Testament priest having that tactile system is better than having an ultimate high priest mediating between us and God in Jesus. He's saying Jesus is better high priest, and he wants to continue to explore this thing, this reality, and how it should shape our everyday life. But he recognizes the audience that he's talking to. And he says, hey, I want to keep talking about this, but I can't. And he's actually uses very direct and harsh seeming language. And it's kind of challenging for us because it, it forces us to evaluate, have I been stubborn or have I been lazy or have I been unwilling to truly allow Jesus to transform every aspect of my life. Now, he says here in chapter 5, verses 11, we have a great deal to say about this, but it's difficult to explain since, we have, since you have become too lazy to understand. The question is, is it because Christ's priesthood is inherently difficult to understand? The author says that the priesthood of Christ is difficult to explain, but is it because Christ's priesthood is too perplexing? No. It's difficult to explain because the people have become too lazy to understand. And he wants them to get to a place where they can make the transition from applying principles and promises about God to wherever they set their feet, in their context. To take faith from something that's abstract and distant and make it tactile and tangible through their life. And so what he says is he, he uses a series of phrases to help them move through this real maturity. And he says, by this time, you ought to be teachers. Now, the word teachers here con conveys a formality in our world, but not all Christians are expected to be pastors or elders or teachers. But all Christians are, however, expected to be teachers in the sense that they should be prepared to train new believers in the fundamentals of the faith. The congregation should, be, cons, cons, should consist of willing and maturing disciples who are training up newer and less developed disciples. The, the idea of having a spiritual conversation about just some basic tenets of the faith should not intimidate or overwhelm these believers. It, it, it should come up very naturally it, out of the overflow of their life, recognizing the goodness and, and the power of God in their life, it, it, it should just kind of just spill out of them. It, but yet, there's a barrier here. And I think this challenges even us, our consumer mindset, where, where time is money and we outsource so much of our lives. But passing down real followership of Jesus isn't something you can outsource. It is not the prime, not just to burst a bubble here, you're not paying me to tell others about Jesus. The pastors are not employees of the church so that they're the only ones responsible to talk about Jesus. It's the responsibility of the congregation to grow in maturity, to, to be able to have spiritual conversations because you know people that I don't know. There's going to be people that you come in contact with that I may never see or engage with. But because God has placed you there, as you learn and grow and can practice your faith wherever your feet are, 
they will have an opportunity to understand the reality that there is a God who loves them and has a purpose for them. And it's a true communal effort. And sometimes it's intentionally one-to-one, but together we are working to create space for that to incur. So intrinsic to the response to follow Jesus is the expectation to pass on the faith. And the author is actually going to make a brief list of what these kind of tenets should be in chapter 6. We're going to get to that next week. But first we need to look at a bit of a freeing statement. It says that some of them are, are inexperienced with the message about righteousness. The reason that's freeing is because you don't have to have all the answers to start. You don't have to have it all figured out when you start this journey. You don't have to, to, to have, be able to write a theological dissertation and, and answer everybody's questions. Sometimes you just need to be present and take some basic principles, willing to have some spiritual conversations and how God's goodness has impacted your life and being willing to share that with others. And this is so pivotal because every believer needs what he calls milk first. A healthy baby needs attention, love, and attachment. If done right and well, it's foundational to be able to walk, talk, feed, clean, and understand who they are. A good connection with a parent is foundational for later development. See, this message on righteousness isn't a nebulous idea without direction. The author describes it as righteousness. All of us long to be accepted by others. While we may not say it out loud and even say, I don't care what other people think about me, on the inside, we all yearn for some sort of intimacy and affection, to be known, to be loved, to be affirmed. And this is yearning is especially true in our relationship with our parents. Gaining or missing out on parental approval has tremendous effects on us, even if it's been years since we had any contact with them. Almost instinctually, some of you are probably kind of nodding your head and starting to get into the mindset, okay, Kyle, so, so what do I have to do to be good? Like, like, like what, what do I have to do if, if this is formative and, 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 and I need to, to, to have this milk or... or I guess in some way it's maybe even, okay, here comes the call for another standard that I can't meet. I'm supposed to do something I should or I ought, but I don't think I can measure up, so why even try? Or even move into a place of self-loathing because of past mistakes. Here's what's so freeing. The message of this righteousness isn't about you being right or making yourself right. It's about God's righteousness and what he has done to then make you right. It's his initiation to you. It's because God is good and right. He is holy and he is just and he is all loving. And now he gets to extend that to you. It's about God's character because he is 
righteous. This idea of who God is and what he has done, and then so am I. It's not the other way around. I do, therefore I am, so now God is this kind of way. It's we've got the order flipped. It's this is who God is, so he acts in this way, and this means that I have a new identity or can be made new or am loved and am cherished. It's that attachment action, therefore then we can live. Which means you can also be free to not have all the answers because trust that through attachment to him, through time spent with him, through that love, then it start, will start to get expressed in your life. It's what God has done for you. Not what you can do for God. What God has done for you must come primary. And then we start to live out his character and priorities in response to that. See, the righteousness is that we, we are completely saved from the penalty of our sin and given eternal life with God. He extends that to us. It's that God can declare us righteous because of Jesus' perfect life exchanged for ours. That we are children fully loved and accepted by our Father, made part of his forever family. That we are giving a new life and identity by the Holy Spirit who lives in us now for those in Christ Jesus. Cleansed from guilt cleansed from shame, can live and love with no fear, given that new life and identity. One of the most healthy things that can happen for a baby is skin-to-skin contact with the parent. Little baby, right on the chest. The baby doesn't even have words yet, yet there is safety and warmth and love in that moment. If you wonder why you may be frustrated in your Christian walk or dissatisfied with your faith, you may need to consider relearning how to just simply be skin to skin with God. No expectations, no long laundry list of actions, do more, try more, be more. Receive. Learn to rest. And in fact, immediately preceding this chapter, he talks about wanting the people of God to enter his rest so that they can be free to live in love. To just receive that. And there is a point in time with that understanding that of righteous is truly static, a connection vertical between God and us, but there's this intrinsic response to follow Jesus is the expectation to then pass on the faith. But you can never pass on what you don't first have. So learning to rest and receive from who God is and what he has done is always must comes first before we can then begin to do and ultimately before we can begin to mature for the unconditional acceptance from God must then will and will then become dynamic within the world and that's why he says later on he says that those who go from to solid food have senses that have been trained to distinguish good and evil This is maybe the second most freeing part. Is you don't have to have all the answers to keep going. But you do get better at discerning how to take those primary promises and live them out. Discernment is critical for our lives. And it often takes shape in ways that are not overtly intellectual. So think about it. We negotiate many of our day-to-day decisions on the basis of intuitive discernment. 
To put it another way, discernment is like a theological or worldview grid that helps us make instant, moral, theological, practical judgments in our circumstances. We would never get anything done if we made every decision on the basis of sheer intellectual reconstruction. It'd be like carrying around a manual and say, someone just talked to me, flip to page 10, now what do I say in response? We don't do that. Imagine a heart surgeon who has to stop and rethink cardiology in the middle of surgery. Imagine how disastrous it would be if he needed to consult the textbook every time he entered the operating room. No one wants that kind of surgeon. We want surgeons who can use the intuition, the training they have developed over years of dedicated practice. This needs for discernment applies not only to surgeons, but also to Christians. Discernment is a higher order of thinking and can only be acquired through some level of first primary attachment. And then taking those principles and those promises and starting to apply them in small ways and then increasingly riskier ways in our everyday lives. We must train. We want surgeons who use the powers of discernment have been trained by that constant practice. So we must start to find ourselves in opportunities to practice our faith, to take it a little more seriously. And if we want to mature as Christians, we must train our powers of discernment by just moving, trying to have some level of spiritual conversations. If you try to start a conversation about faith, do you even know where to start? What would you share first? Thinking about what's most important. Thinking about your story and how God is at work in your lives. We should thoroughly consider and internalize the core beliefs and practices so that we can just have conversations and ultimately teach them to others which ultimately leads to an intuitive practice of discerning good and evil. See, it's taking a set of promises, principles, practices, precepts, patterns, prayers, and prophecies found throughout the scriptures and learning how to take those and now function in gray areas so that in the darkness, there's light without all the information because we'll never have all the information. See, righteousness isn't just a static thing between you and God. True righteousness is the relationship, that relationship expressed dynamically in a time and in a place. And here's the issue. As these Christians moved into the world, they have received pushback and it's painful. Therefore, they want to return to a more static or in some ways transactional faith. We like when things are transactional. We just exchange, we get what we paid for, we leave and go. And the challenge is, is the church is not a business of religious goods and services. And so every day as we consider what it looks like to follow Jesus well, we're going to face some of those same pressures to revert, maybe not back to a sacrifice of the Old Testament law, but to a segregated faith where rituals and rites become our medium for faith where it's easier to show up to a gathering one hour a week, dogma, lock, you know, put in your time, and go back to life. Or maybe check a box at the start of the day, read your Bible for the 15 minutes, and then move on. Sweet, I did it. Now those participating in a gathering, engaging with God's word, 
are very formative practices that can help us grow. But when they're reduced to something transactional, they cease to be transformative. The goal of life is an integrated faith, or as we say around here, an everyday faith, where formative practices and relationship take the classroom to the road. It's like the 90s cartoon, Magic School Bus, where the teacher takes her students and whatever topic they're talking about, hop in this school bus and it shrinks in size, grows in size. They go to the Arctic, they hop in a bloodstream and yes, it's a cartoon, but they take the lesson on the road to engage and to be practical, to take where the knowledge they discussed now must then be used to get them out of trouble and get them back to the classroom safely in some crazy situation. My hope for us as a church is that this does not become purely academic. Kyle, good word. Learned a few Greek and Hebrew words. Like, was challenged a little bit, felt good, got me in the heart. Sweet, see you next week. But that it becomes so routine, so studious, that, that our lives become transformed so that wherever we do find ourselves, we're choosing to put some things into practice. And I guess two notes on this, this last phrase. Then we're going to get into how this might, how we might take this awareness from our seats to the street. We must be careful not to be a barrier to transitioning from this milk to meat. Ultimately, we're not the determining factor in where someone's at in their growth journey. They're not ready to make this transition is not for us to say so we must not be a barrier there. And we, but we also must be quick to identify where we are complicating the basics. To be able to simplify things, keep the main thing the main thing, and allow that then to be expressed will greatly help us in this journey. We have a savior who learned obedience through what he suffered. Therefore, we can pursue maturity. So intrinsic to the response to follow Jesus is the expectation to pass on the faith. There are a lot of phrases that have been used over the years to describe what I'm about to say, mentoring, discipling, relational evangelism. But what I would say is every person needs at least three type of people in their life to help them on this maturity journey. To go from a place where it's okay to learn the basics, to be at this place, and then grow over time. And so if you've got a note or, or something you want to write this down, I'd encourage you to draw three circles and think about who, could who are these three people that could go in these circles. The first is an older person in the faith whom you can learn from. You see character traits in their life that you want to live out. You're, you're gleaming information from them and they are passing it down to you. There's an understanding. The second is, is a peer or a friend, or as Simon Sinek calls them, a worthy rival. Someone who, who, who pushes you to be better together, mutually pushing each other. The third is someone who's newer in the faith. Maybe it's a newer believer or even a non-believer who has questions and while you may not have all the answers, you can help them take some of those next steps in their faith. And they have to be aware and you have to be aware. And so 
as you think of those three circles, maybe you wrote them down, maybe you're, you're thinking about those three people in mind, I'd encourage every person to have someone in those three circles. And guess what? If one of those is blank, pray and ask God to give you clarity on who that person can be. If there's someone that you don't have who's older in the faith, and again, to say older in the faith does not mean that they are elderly or that they are even older than you. But maybe they've been a Christian a little bit longer, and again, there, there's some things in their life that you, you say, I, I want to learn how to live that out in my own life. If you don't have that, you can pray for that and ask God to give you that person. If you don't have that brother or sister in Christ who, who's that peer who, who's kind of pushing you to be better, maybe even do better. And again, I, I, I hesitate with that because I don't want to heap more on you. But you kind of need that person who's constantly asking, how are things going? You said you were going to do this. Are you actually doing it? Are you trying it? Or are you even receiving the promises from God in your life? And then who is that person who they're aware and you're aware where you're intentionally passing down? What I find is when you have those three people in your life, you intrinsically begin to mature in some way. Because what is coming through up here, what's experiencing in God's word, doesn't stay here and stay here. It gets expressed in conversation. You talk about it, and you can hold each other ultimately accountable to live a certain way and follow God well. I gotta tell you on the risks, though. If you do this, there is risk. There's a risk of rejection. There's a risk of failure. There's a, a risk that it might not last forever. And you have to go through conflict or a difficult time. So there's risks involved. But with risk also comes reward. Moving from foundational things to being able to navigate then with wisdom in the gray areas of life because you have someone investing in you, you have a strong peer, and you're also passing and modeling that down for someone else. See, within these relationships, we have to remind each other of these truths. The band's gonna come back up and we're gonna sing one final song together. And one of the reasons we sing is because we need to be reminded of the attachment that we have with God. Because at the end of the day, it's not do more, be more, try more. It's receive first and foremost. And there's all kinds of little resources out there that help. But one of the things that I find most helpful to remind me of my attachment to God is this little book that says 33 things that happen at the point of salvation. And they remind us that we are forgiven, that we're the family, the household of God, that I'm a child of God. And sometimes we need little things like this, little tools like this to remind us of that attachment because we forget. We reduce things down to a transaction and we, we put things before and we get discouraged and we get beat up. But friends, the world needs a church who will live their everyday faith everywhere. Not because they're performing, but because they are maturing. 
The world needs a church who becomes so well-versed in the basics of what it means to be forgiving, what it means to love, what it means to be and receive righteousness, that they see love embodied over laziness. Today's benefit is that God has revealed himself to us in Jesus, showing us how to mature. So may we be reminded, in some ways, as we'll probably sing, woken up to the reality that God has loved and moved towards us so we can love and move towards others.